so here at Generation 180, you know, we're all about inspiring and equipping not just individual households and personal lives, but communities. And why do we believe in communities? Because that's the area that individuals can have a big impact that spreads. Today we're talking with Kevin Green. He's the Senior Director at the Center for Behavior and the Environment at Rare. Kevin, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. Cool. Um, So Rare is all about behavior change science and helping other organizations apply that to their campaign. But everyday people can get a lot out of the science behind behavior change too. So Kevin, talk to me about what you do at Rare. Sure. Yeah. Well, you said it. Um, at the Center for Behavior and the Environment, the team that I lead at Rare, uh, we're trying really hard to bring the best of the science of human behavior to bear on uh, the the most puzzling and urgent environmental challenges of our time, like like climate change, um, and and really help other practitioners design solutions that leverage that that science in a, in an effective way. Um, so we we think a lot about how to transform the way that we understand the audiences that we're trying to engage um, in a way that helps make the solutions that we're designing sort of more accessible uh, and more meaningful and ultimately more actionable for them. What's new about what you're doing now compared to what we used to be doing? So Rare's been kicking around for about 40 years now, and uh, we've been running community-led behavior change campaigns um, in the field. Uh, We've now done about 450 of these in, I think, the current total is 59 countries uh, around the world, all sort of based on the idea that it'd be more effective to inspire communities of individuals to change their behavior and then enable them to, uh, uh, much like Generation 180 is thinking about doing, um, rather than, say, uh, force them to or pay them to or or, um, uh, something like that. And so, you know, that was built on sort of a a foundational intuition um, that uh, people can be motivated in these um, sort of unique ways, and since that time, you know, we've 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 dug really deep into the science of human behavior and found out that um, contrary to what many of our economic models, you know, predicted uh, uh, since like the Renaissance, um, you know, people aren't always these sort of rational, self-interested, uh, what economists call utility-maximizing decision makers. So, you know, we like to think, we like to assume sometimes that. Uh, we all sort of add up the costs and benefits of every choice that we have to make throughout the day, and we just choose choose the one that maximizes the best possible outcomes. But people are much more complicated than that. And so the bottom line is really our team is is thinking about um, how to leverage insights about uh, those complicated aspects of our decision making in ways that make uh, environmental solutions work. So do you think you've seen a gap? You see those? You see there's a gap that people aren't using that? Yeah, we you know. You know, if we look at uh, some of the tools that we've relied on in the environmental field, uh, predominantly, these look like, um, you know, things like policy and regulatory change, uh, economic incentives, material incentives, and uh, sort of information. And those can be really, really powerful uh, tools. But sometimes, uh, you know, we change the rules, uh, we change the regulatory environment, and People don't necessarily follow them. We, we find that to be particularly true in many of the places um, uh, where we work around the world, where institutions um, uh, for enforcement aren't, aren't quite as strong as they might be here in the U.S. Um, you know, we look at the use of economic incentives, and again, you know, markets and material incentives can be very, very powerful influencers on our behavior, but sometimes they produce unintended consequences 
uh, that are very difficult to predict. Um, and then lastly, you know, information or evidence. This is sort of the original sin of our field. And we've often assumed that um, if we provide everyone facts about uh, uh, about how bad we're doing, about all the damage that we're doing to the environment, everyone else is going to think exactly like we do, which is that we should change our behavior. And, uh, you know, climate change is a great example of the fact that that just doesn't necessarily work all the time. Facts don't always change minds. And so, like I said, these can be incredibly powerful tools for motivating behavior change, but they're not everything that we have available. And so um, we're trying really hard to broaden the toolkit, broaden the set of levers um, that environmentalists uh, uh, sustainability practitioners can bring to the solutions that they're designing, um, things that use uh, uh, what we call emotional appeals, social incentives, and something called choice architecture, which is just changing the context of decision-making to help make the new behaviors that we're promoting easier and more likely uh, to happen. So that's cool. We'll we'll get to those three that you just talked about, but I like the idea of talking about it as a, as a toolkit or a tool belt and saying that um, facts, we're not going to not use facts. We're not going to not right. ever show destruction or, or whatever it might be, these, these tools that we've used in the past. But it's is it more like just being strategic with what tools we're going to use? Some are new tools to some people, which are great. Um, but I just like that idea of like this is a tool belt, this is a toolkit, and we're going to use certain tools with certain audiences and certain campaigns. Um, I like that idea a lot. That's um, right. So I, th- I think you, you kind of pivot us really well. I can remember you came down to Generation 180 a few months ago to do some of this training with us, which was awesome. Um, it was months, so I completely forgot everything you taught us. Yeah. So can you give me like an idea? You know, you use this phrase, um, behavior activators, and you, you just bucketed those out again for us, the emotional appeal, social norms, and choice architecture. So... Um, so you do remember. Because I wrote it down. There's these <laughs> notes right in front of me. Um, so break it down for our listeners. Like, tell me what those three are into a little more detail. Sure. So emotional appeals um, are exactly what they sound like. Um, and they're based on the notion that emotions are often uh, simply more powerful than reason. So um, like I said, we like to assume that our our responses are highly rational, that we make decisions in this sort of logical, calculating way. But we're d- deeply emotional beings. And, and oftentimes our emotional responses, they might be more powerful, or they at least might be faster in terms of how they uh, affect our decision-making. And that can be both positive and negative. And uh, with my team and at Rare, uh, we like to think a lot about the positive emotions and the impact that those have on our behavior. So there's a lot of research that goes into, for instance, the difference between um, uh, messages involving pride and messages involving emotions like shame or guilt and how incredibly powerful uh, uh, emotional appeals, appeals to pride, uh, can be for individuals. Um, And so those are the types of things that we use in that category. Basically, uh, instead of just providing factual information about the the choices that are available or about sort of the information related to our behavior, how can we generate sort of some of those emotional responses in ways that uh, bend us toward the types of behaviors that we're trying to promote? Um, How can we make ourselves proud uh, about the, the the lifestyle that we're pursuing to to achieve more sustainability. 
Um, how can we create moments of what we call moments of elevation or peak moments, which have a profound impact on our behavior and our, our recollection of experiences? How can we use emotions like serendipity or surprise? Um, these are really under leveraged, we think, in the environmental field. Uh, and, and so, you know, we try to bring those um, into that uh, toolkit, as you said, as well, so that we can, uh, like you said, not um, uh, eliminate all the tools that we've used before, but how, how we, can we strengthen them? How can we bring more of those to bear? So that's one. The second, uh, what we call social incentives, uh, or you also um, refer to social norms, is really about uh, the fact that humans are inherently social animals. So uh, it's true that we often are self-interested. We behave in self-interested ways. It's what makes our capitalist system work. Uh, but humans are also uh, inherently social animals who exist in groups, who like to cooperate, uh, who like to reciprocate, um, and who care about what other other people think about them. And so that can have a profound influence on our behavior as well. And so how do we create the right social in- environment uh, uh, to make the choices that that we prefer our audiences to make uh, more appealing. Um, That can be things like uh, promoting the desirable norm, um, as you said. So uh, making information about what other people are doing more available if it supports the behavior that uh, that we're trying to promote. Um, Another very strong one is uh, promoting observability of behavior. So if we care about our reputation so much and about the sort of reputational impacts of our behavior, what are ways, how might we make our own behavior more observable to our peers so that um, the social benefits of doing the good thing uh, are more present and the social costs of doing the bad thing are also more present? Those fit into that category of social incentives. The last is what we call choice architecture. And this is about Essentially, that the context and the timing of our decision-making often matters as much as the actual choices that we uh, have to make. And so um, how can we alter the context to create the enabling conditions that make uh, the good behavior easier to do? How how can we change the choice set or the way that the choice set is presented? How can we otherwise sort of influence the environment in which decisions are made uh, to make that behavior easier? None of these are sort of mutually exclusive from those traditional tools that I mentioned of uh, policy and regulatory change, material incentives, and um, uh, and information, they can just be sort of complementary and built into a more holistic toolkit for how we influence people. Okay, so emotional appeals, social incentives, and choice architecture. Um, it's easy to define those, and but I think for our viewers, I'd love to kind of put you on the spot and ask for some more concrete examples. So like, what does that look like in the real world and someone's community? Can you give me um, real or, or not, but some actual example that can help drive that home a little bit more to them? Sure. I can give more examples than you ever <laughs> uh, wish for. Um, well, I'll say in the category of emotional appeals, you know, I talked a bit about pride. Uh, this is a really sort of um, a keystone emotional appeal for us at Rare. Our sort of flagship program in the field uh, has traditionally been known as pride campaigns um, in in projects where we're trying to promote the protection of a particular species uh, or particular habitat. We've run entire campaigns around the idea of uh, protecting an endemic species by being uh, 
proud of it and promoting that sort of identity of pride in the community. And the fact of the matter is, and oftentimes people are surprised by this, uh, pride is an incredibly powerful motivator for all human beings. Of course, that's manifest in different ways uh, around the world. But, you know, pride campaigns are a great example of that. Just sort of, you know, anecdotal experiment that I like to talk about is uh, one involving uh, uh, an experiment with chocolate cake. And I'll just give you a really rapid summary that basically uh, these researchers on a college campus here in the U.S. split people into three groups. In the first group, um, they just told them, they they put cake in front of them and they said you can eat as much or as little as you want. In the second group, uh, they gave them some cake and they said you can eat as much or as little as you want, uh, but imagine how proud of yourself you'll be later if you don't eat any. And in the third group, they said uh, uh, you can eat as much or as little as you want, but imagine how ashamed of yourself you'll be later on if you do indulge. And they came back later to see how much people ate. And they measured things like, you know, the number of bites taken and the biomass left on the plate and all these all these sort of indicators. And um, long story short, uh, the the group that received the pride messaging ate profoundly less cake than the other two groups. And the group that received the shame messaging ate the most. Uh, and so that that's would be a really, me, I think. <laughs> yeah. And and, you know, that just goes to show how in both directions powerful these emotional sort of appeals can be. And the chocolate cake example is a is a funny one to share. But there's actually been a fair amount of, of research uh, uh, from folks like Elkie Weber at Princeton University on this type of messaging um, in the context of climate change and how messages about pride versus messages about guilt um, can have these similar differential uh, differential impacts. Um, so it's um, it's the real deal. Um, you know, in the category of of social incentives, uh, there are so many of these um, uh, related to a handful of different behavioral activators, as you said, like promoting the desirable norm, like choosing the right messenger, like increasing observability of behavior, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You know, one I think your listeners might be familiar with, but is is particularly uh, useful, is a study from researchers at Arizona State University, Noah Goldstein and Robert Cialdini and some others, um, uh, to test different messages on those little placards that you see in your hotel bathroom asking you to reuse your towels. Right. Yep. Uh, yep. We see those everywhere now. They're in, you know, probably 95% of hotels. And as a, as a sort of behavior change enthusiast, I, I can't go to a hotel now without evaluating the language that they've put on their, on their placard. Uh, so these researchers, they wanted to test what works uh, uh, really well. And so they, they tried a bunch of different messages. There's been a whole series of studies on this now. But one example uh, is in one case, they, um, they just tried a basic uh, help, this, help the hotel save the environment sort of message. And they got something like 31% of uh, hotel guests to reuse their towels just with that kind of messaging. So they kind of set that as a baseline. They tried a slightly different messaging on a different set of hotel guests. They said uh, 75% of guests in this hotel reuse their towels. So that's a great example of promoting the desirable norm. They said to a hotel guest, uh, 75% of other people, 75% of other guests um, are reusing their towels. And they saw then uh, the the conversion rate, the the, num- the percent of hotel guests reusing their towels jump from thirty one percent to forty four percent. So telling them ev- everyone else is doing it, you should you should do it too. Exactly, and and in this case they didn't have to lie. That was the truth um, from a different set of hotels or something. They they figured out a way to do it in a not deceptive way, um, uh, and people just modeled their behavior for that. There's all sorts of reasons why that's true. 
um, you know, we're, we tend to be lazy. And so we just follow uh, the herd. Um, you know, we don't want to be deviants, all these kinds of things that um, just knowing what the norm is uh, uh, can have a big impact on, on our own decisions. They tried even a third category of messages. I mean, this one is kind of funny that the slight change for this one was uh, 75% of guests in this room have reused their towels, which my first instinct is to think of that as kind of creepy to imagine other guests um, in the room. But that then jumped uh, the conversion rate from 44% up to 49%. So they got another five percentage point um, increase just by drawing the identity even closer. So there's something happening in our subconscious, even though it's not rational at all, uh, that says, um, you know, there's something, there's some shared identity I have with someone else who was in this very room, and now I feel obligated uh, 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 to reuse it. Um, so, you know, that's just one interesting example uh, of a study that has showed the power of this stuff. Um, uh, the third category that, that we're talking about is choice architecture, and there's really a whole just very wide range of, of um, behavioral activators that can leverage choice architecture or changing the environment of decision-making um, to make the new behavior easier to do. One of my favorite examples uh, is something that the uh, the Better Buying Lab at the World Resources Institute has been trying out. The Better Buying Lab is is working hard to, to help people adopt more plant-rich uh, diets in order to reduce um, greenhouse gas emissions. And they've been uh, trying some experiments in menu design in restaurants, basically seeing whether or not the way, just the way that menu choices are presented can have a meaningful impact on um, uh, on those choices. And so they did this one set of experiments where they had sort of what we might call a, um, a regular menu. And they had, I don't know, maybe 10 dishes on that menu, two of which were vegetarian. And they just dispersed the vegetarian dishes randomly in the within the menu um, in the second case the, the the vegetarian treatment they created on the menu a separate vegetarian section this is very common this is what we're used to seeing in restaurants of you know a vegetarian section where you can go and find the vegetarian dishes all the dishes on the menu were the same they just did this different sh- menu structure and they wanted to see you know how what percentage of people ordered vegetarian dishes in the first case the regular menu Somewhere north of 13% of people, of, of restaurant uh, patrons, uh, bought vegetarian dishes. In the vegetarian menu, the one with the special section for vegetarian options, uh, I want to say the number was just shy of 6% uh, of guests bought vegetarian dishes. Um, and, and so, you know, less than half when they created a special vegetarian section on the menu. And, you know, there can be a lot of reasons why that's true, but you know, one is... Um, uh, it's conceivable that by calling out the vegetarian section, they've alienated everyone who might have just wanted a, a vegetarian dish, but I'm not a vegetarian. don't consider themselves a vegetarian. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's a, that's a tiny experiment, but it's a really interesting finding about how just the way that our choices are presented to us can have such a dramatic, I mean, that's a dramatic difference in uh, how many people are ordering vegetarian dishes. So lots of examples like that about, you know, changing the way that we present choices uh, or changing the environment in which choices are made uh, to, um, uh, uh, to to make the desired behavior more likely or easier to do. Um, but one of the things that is, that is so fascinating about behavior science or behavior change science is how much of it goes against what we typically and inherently think 
we do as humans. Like you said, like we, we, uh, think that we're logical. We think that we're rational in our decision making. Um, so it's really, really interesting and fascinating to see like, well, we think we do one thing, but we, we in fact do another. Um, so the question is, what are some things that people find surprising or get wrong or miss when you see them out there trying to make change? You know, what are some, not, not, not calling out names, but like, what are some of the most common examples you see other than just saying uh, people lead with facts and maybe they ought not to, um, what are some of those things that people are trying to do on the real world, trying to make change and they're struggling and it's not happening because they're using like what wrong principles are we, are they falling back on? Yeah. Um, we, your question first made me think of this quote that I love and, and I, I won't remember off the top of my head who the writer is, but it's a science fiction author who wrote, um, man is a rationalizing animal, not a rational animal. And so, uh, what he meant by that is, um, you know, we assume that we're rational, but all of our rationalizing happens after the fact. We act and then we explain why we did what we did, uh, often for reasons that have nothing to do with why we actually did it. Um, so, uh, you know, we are we are funny that way. The bottom line is we need to think about, we need to begin with and focus on what is the actual behavior that we want to promote. And oftentimes we have this starting point in the environmental field and, and you know, um, I, I've been as guilty as anyone of this, uh, of imagining that we have to convince everyone else to believe uh, exactly what we believe or to share our values, um, uh, and to share our attitudes or, or just our level of awareness. And the truth of the matter is um, we are never going to convince uh, everyone else to care as much about the environment as we do. So that's a really wrong-headed starting point. And so you know, we like to say that the first thing that we can do better is focus on behavior. Um, and sometimes changing that behavior might mean uh, par- part of the solution is um, uh, promoting a change in values or a change in attitudes. But it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so um, I think, you know, the most this is a very sort of simple answer, but one of the most egregious things that we've been guilty of um, is not focusing first on what we actually want people to do and then designing for that. Um, we often focus first on we need to get everyone else to agree with us and to change their mind and expect that their behavior follows for the same reasons. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about is something that's important to us as Generation 180. There's a debate, an important debate going on in the climate movement, and especially among journalists who cover it, about the role of individual behavior change. So some argue that expanding effort on changing individual and uh, community behavior is not worthwhile necessarily that instead let's focus all our energy and effort on moving these big political levers instead so i don't know if you've read any of the articles that have been coming out recently about that but what's what's your or rare's uh take take on that idea sure uh we are very aware of this uh zeitgeist in the climate change um uh blogosphere or twitter sphere or what have you nowadays and and i think it's a really valid um, and important discussion to be having um you know we very respectfully uh, disagree with those who argue that we are past the point at which individual and community change um matters and there, there are a couple of reasons for that the first is we just think that's not consistent with the data um so uh, we actually think that there's strong 
um, data to support the idea that um, individual action at scale, collective action, which begins with individuals, you can't get collective action without individuals, uh, actually has a potentially very profound impact um, on uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and can represent, um, I think, a lot more than most people realize uh, or expect. So we did a little analysis um, a couple years ago, uh, starting with the project drawdown analysis, which I know um, you guys are very familiar with. We basically did an internal back-of-the-envelope analysis and said, um, you know, based on our sort of definition, how many of these 80 solutions, you know, it's 100, but 20 are sort of future-facing, so 80 solutions uh, would we consider depending in large part on individual um, behavior change. So in other words, the solution more or less exists, and the last mile, if you will, is just getting people to adopt them. And, you know, our back-of-the-envelope analysis said 30 of these um, were what we would call sort of behavior change across all of the sectors of food and agriculture and energy and materials and transport. So we, um, we've we built on that uh, uh, sort of back-of-the-envelope project drawdown analysis, which we actually published in a report called Climate Change Needs Behavior Change, which you can find on our website, rare.org backslash center. Um, we partnered up with a group called the California Environmental Associates to build uh, a model for what potential impact um, six of these behavioral categories can have in the U.S. if only 10% of Americans adopt them. So we really wanted to start with something that we could get our arms around. We don't have to convince everyone in the country to become a vegetarian. We we want to have a reachable audience. So we said, what does it look like if we get 10% of Americans to adopt these six behavioral categories? The list is uh, adopt a plant-rich diet, contract for green energy, or install rooftop solar. Those are bundled together. Uh, reduce food waste. Buy electric vehicles if you're a new car buyer. We're not trying to increase the amount of people buying cars, but to replace uh, fuel combustion engines with electric vehicles. Um, fly one less time for the actually the 5% of Americans who fly more than five times a year, if we can just get them to reduce uh, uh, by one flight. And lastly, buy carbon offsets because we're not going to eliminate uh, our carbon lifestyles entirely. And so there's a big um, uh, uh, potential impact from um, offsetting uh, some emissions. Those six behavioral uh, categories. If we can get about the categories, are, the 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 audiences are a bit different in each one. But if we can get ten percent of Americans to adopt those, um, that can add up to. It doesn't have to be the same ten percent across all six. Uh, that can add up to almost half of how of our expected shortfall for our Paris um, uh, target. So we're expected to miss that target by about one point six gigatons. And those six behaviors from 10% of Americans um, can add up to almost 0.8 gigatons. So it gets us almost halfway there. That's a huge proportion. That's a huge component of greenhouse gas emissions and a movement that we think is actually possible to create. Um, And so, you know, we think a lot of this discussion is sort of missing that point that we do still have a big role to play in, um, uh, in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The second piece is that you know, we believe that behavior change is important because it doesn't take an act of Congress to get to behavior change. But the second point is that it might take behavior change to get to an act of Congress. So we're at this political impasse that's making it very, very difficult in our country um, to achieve the sort of massive policy reform that everybody wants to make this problem um, much more manageable. And we think that actually uh, uh, one way to get there, to help us get there, 
might be um, creating a movement in which people change their behavior, new social norms uh, uh, exist, and the sorts of attitudes that support that policy reform then come about as a result of that behavior change. And so we actually then create the environment in which policy change is possible um, by engaging individuals in this sort of um, uh, movement for behavior change. Um, and so we're working really hard to build this case um, uh, and to help sort of the whole community um, think more about what's actually possible here. Because while it's a really, really important discussion to be having, um, we think that individual and community behavior change and policy reform and technological innovation are all required uh, uh, to make um, this planet continue to be a hospitable home for our species. Couldn't have said it better. Kevin Green, thanks so much for the conversation. Appreciate having you. Hey, thanks for having me.